This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Premier Wynn at an event uh, was talking about cap and trade and basically called Ontarians very bad actors when it comes to creating greenhouse gases. We have a call into the Liberals on this, but uh, they haven't responded uh, at this point. So we called Patrick Brown, leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. We had a quick interview with him a little earlier on this morning. Patrick Brown is with us, leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. Patrick, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We greatly appreciate it. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, you know, we, uh, we asked the Liberals about this. Uh, we're going to ask you to. Yesterday, or the other day, uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne was talking about cap and trade. She says, quote, when I see Ontario in the context, not just of the country, but of the continent and the globe, we have to play a role. And even though we are a small percentage overall of the global greenhouse gas emissions, we're very bad actors in terms of our per capita creation of emissions. As, as I've mentioned, we're going to get the Liberals to comment on this. How do you interpret it? Well, I think it's disappointing that uh, Kathleen Wynne blames the public, blames the people of Ontario for her government. She's leading a tired government with a complete lack of results, um, with a plan that is all over the map when it comes to combating climate change that is poorly thought out. Um, and the fact that she wants to kick others, blame others for her own government's failures uh, is disappointing. It seems she took your party's advice and started to scrap some of the future plans. What was your take on that? I think it's an act of desperation. It's, it's window dressing. Um, you know, they get rid of the clean energy benefit, which is a 10% rebate, and replace it with an 8% rebate, the PST rebate. It, things are still going to go up. Rates are still going to go up. And in terms of canceling the contracts, they're not cancelling LRP1. They're cancelling the, 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 the projects that would be built 10 years from now. It's like saying, we're going to save you money by not buying that Mercedes we don't need in 10 years. She's not saving us money. Um, we have this giant surplus because of the contract she signed. We've given away $6 billion in electricity. We've given away $6 billion because she signed contracts that we absolutely don't need. She has become the best Minister of Economic Development that Pennsylvania, that Michigan, that New York has ever seen because she's using Ontario Electricity and giving it to them almost for free. And on top of that, the companies that got these contracts gave the Ontario Liberal Party $1.3 million. So the only person who's benefiting from these horrible contracts that she signed and refuses to cancel is Kathleen Wynne and the Liberal Party. Don't we have to play a role here, though, Patrick? Absolutely, and, 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 and we can play a role without lining the pockets of the Liberal Party. We can play a role without signing contracts that we have to give to Michigan. You know, the, the proposal that I made was rather than cap and trade, where we buy emissions credits from California, under Kathleen Wynne's plan, by 2030 we'll be sending $3 billion to California. Um, I prefer the BC model, which is revenue neutral, which shows that any funds raised from carbon pricing stay in Ontario. What does it have to do with climate change to subsidize green companies in California? Let's think about Ontario first. You know, I, I, I'm sick and tired of Kathleen Wynne making life easier for businesses outside of Ontario. I want her to start thinking about Ontario. Is there a way to hit these targets uh, without breaking Ontario? Yes, if it's a made in Ontario solution. And carbon pricing which encourages um, using uh, green uh, uh, technology, which encourages carbon pricing, encourages using environmentally um, friendly resources. If under carbon pricing, 
you keep it in Ontario. It's revenue neutral. And so I believe we, I believe that Ontario can uh, combat climate change. I believe we can play our part. But, but I'm not buying Kathleen uh, Wynne's line that, that's blaming the public and insisting we have to sign on to a, a, a scheme that sends funds to California. I just don't. I don't support it. So uh, your so the BC model has been a much uh, has been much more successful. So you're you you believe in the carbon pricing as opposed to the cap and trade then? Yeah, I I can never support sending three billion dollars to California. Um, I I want to keep whatever. If it's really two things. One, if it's really about the environment, government shouldn't uh, be finding an additional revenue source. Right now, Kathleen Wynne's getting one point nine billion dollars from more spending. If it's really about the environment. It's not more money for, for, for the government. If it's really about changing behavior, stick to that. It should be about changing behavior, encouraging um, good consumer choices, not, not justifying bigger government spending and uh, elaborate deals with California that we can't afford. Uh, she said we're very bad actors in terms of per capita creation of, emiss- of emissions. Uh, is this just simply because we've got a big country and there's too few of us? This is Kathleen Wynne blaming the public. Um, and, you know, as soon as you start blaming other people, they've been in power for 13 years. They've done nothing. And all of a sudden right now, it, they're, they're trying to blame other people. You know, they, they tried to say that they were going to do this Green Energy Act. Their Green Energy Act was such an unmitigated disaster that, it, that it's become the laughingstock of North America. They signed contracts with South Korea, with China, for, for major renewable contracts we didn't need to such an extent, we can't run our own green, green energy. We have hydroelectric projects, water power in Ontario, northern Ontario, that we can't run at full capacity, at full generation. We're turning off our own green power to subsidize Kathleen Wynne's deals with South Korea and China. It's unbelievable. It's nothing to do with green energy, what she's done, because water power, Ontario water power, that's green. These giant wind turbines that she, con- that, that, she, that, that she signed with China and South Korea um, benefited the Liberal Party. They did not benefit Ontario. Uh, lots of Ontarians are extremely unhappy about the price of their electricity. Will this be an election issue? Will this still be uh, have people hot on, under the collar by the time the election rolls around? You bet it will be. And, and I'm going to continue to raise it in the legislature every single week. By the government's own estimates, hydro bills by 2018 will go up 42%. Every month, you're going to see your bills continue to go up because Kathleen Wynne has not fixed the structural problems. Every month, they're going to go up, and every month, I'm going to challenge Kathleen Wynne um, to account for this. Every month in the legislature, November 1st, the next rate increase is coming. Uh, And, you know, Kathleen Wynne's left an impression with the public that because of this PST rebate, their hydro bills are going to go down. No one's bills are going down. And if you quietly ask the government, they'll admit that bills are going to go, go up and up and up between now and 2018. So I can assure you this is going to be an election issue because the government's record on this is an unmitigated, an unmitigated series of errors, uh, and, and they have to own it. They have to be responsible for it. Patrick Brown has been with us, leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. Patrick, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My, my pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Kathleen Wynne in Niagara talking about cap and trade and, you know, trying to sell it to everybody. Of course, people are skeptical because 
not because of, and this is the drag about this, is that, you know, because she has been so um, secretive and certainly lack of transparency when it comes to these deals and what's going on, and our rates keep going up and going up, she's turning people off the whole green movement. And the drag is, is that everybody's green. Everybody wants to save the planet for the grandkids. And why does she keep dividing us all as if some are green and some are fossil fuel burning pigs? No, we just don't want to get hosed. And when the Auditor General says we've overpaid by $37 billion for this scheme, people are going to be questioning cap and trade. And when you have Kathleen Wynne saying things like, even though we're a small percentage of the overall global greenhouse gas emissions, we're very bad actors in terms of our per capita greenhouse emissions. To talk more about all this, Dr. Ross McKittrick is with us, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph, and he is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time. What do you think of Premier Wynne's comments on us being very bad actors? Well, you know, the problem I find with people who really get entrenched in the environmentalist mindset is that nothing you do is ever enough. Now, Ontario has paid a huge cost over the past decade for cleaning up air quality and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Just to rattle off a couple of numbers, our total particulate emissions since 1990 are down over 50%, and particulate emissions from motor vehicles are down two-thirds over the past 25 years. And that wasn't cheap. I mean, that's built into the price of the cars that people buy. It's built into the price of goods and services because of the pollution control requirements. So at the end of all of that, for her to turn around and say we're a bunch of bad guys, um, and the same with the greenhouse gases. We've paid a fortune to phase out the coal-fired power plants. They could have done it much cheaper. They could have accomplished all the same goals at a fraction of the cost. It's their own fault that it's turned out to be so expensive. And so naturally, people are uh, unhappy that she wants to lay on a whole bunch of new costs through the cap-and-trade scheme. And this is not a, a government that's forthcoming about the cost of these things. So, of course, people are skeptical. For her to turn around and just blame it all on the public and say, we're the bad guys, I can understand people be very frustrated by that because uh, at a certain point, you know, it just becomes clear. It's, it's never enough with, with these folks. And whatever costs we've borne, it seems like they just want to keep laying more and more costs on. If we're bad actors, how come she came out the, uh, the other week and said we were going to cancel future plans? <laughs> well, see, that's another interesting thing because... For a long time, they kept insisting that adding renewables to the supply mix wasn't going to push up our costs, and that wasn't the source of the problems. And then they finally had to admit that actually that is a big source of the problem. And so they're trying to, they're not reversing course, they're just slowing down Mm -hmm. the accumulation of costs. Um, So that was, you know, in, in the end, that doesn't really affect, doesn't help because it's not going to reduce people's costs. It just... Um, means a future round of increases that might not go through, but it doesn't actually um, cut costs. To me, the big thing there is just it's an admission. It's an admission that, uh, yeah, these renewables were behind the big push-up in uh, the power prices, and uh, that's where the problem is. Uh, Why a uh, cap-and-trade versus a carbon tax? Why does BC prefer the carbon tax over cap-and-trade? Why are we doing something different? Um, well, BC is right to prefer carbon tra- carbon tax over cap and trade if you're going to use a, a pricing model. 
there's a lot of economic literature on this that uh, cap and trade systems for something like greenhouse gases for carbon dioxide in particular um, cap and trade doesn't work very well because the underlying technology there's really very few options for reducing emissions and that translates into a huge amount of uncontrollable price volatility and so jurisdictions that have tried to use cap and trade they fall into one of two errors one is they're too restrictive and the price goes through the roof or as happened in Europe they relax the permit supply a little bit and the price collapses but either way it's a very hard system to put in place and make work no one's really been able to do it for carbon dioxide whereas a carbon tax um, the advantage there is you pick the price that you think is appropriate and then the market responds to the price and everything stays very predictable and constant so um, she's not acting here on the basis of sound economic analysis uh, I think politicians like cap and trade because it's easier to bury the costs and also to try to divert the revenues. CBC puts all the revenue back into income tax reductions. Everybody can see the money going in and coming back out. With cap and trade, it's very hard to follow the money. Why would, why if, if British Columbia is the poster child for, for carbon tax, why, why, aren't, why isn't everybody looking at this? And, and why is Kathleen Wynne, who's also a liberal government, why is she looking the other way? Um, well, I don't know. I, I wasn't involved in any of the discussions around this, uh, the, the people that I, I've spoken to in the provincial government uh, are would you aware su- of would you suggest Would you suggest, analysis. sorry, would you suggest to, would you suggest then that this is just an easier way to redirect the money where you want to? Um, that's probably part of it. Um, maybe they thought the optics were good. I don't know. They, they make decisions based on political grounds, not on, on economic grounds. Hmm. Uh, wow. Uh, so out of the two, you prefer a carbon tax as opposed to a cap and trade? Yes. And in, in basic uh, layman's terms, can you, can you define the two? Can you compare the two? What's the difference between a carbon tax and a cap and trade? Um, well, a carbon tax is essentially a, a tax on fuels in proportion to the amount of carbon dioxide that's released when the fuel is burned. And it's the price is there, it's predictable, and then people respond to the price um, in ways that will end up reducing emissions. Cap and trade, you issue permits, you either auction them off or you give them away, and then you let people trade those permits, um, and they have to uh, reduce their emissions to match the number of permits they're holding. So there's a market for the permits, and then you get buyers and sellers. And um, for some types of pollution Tradable permits work very well. Those those are cases though where emitters have a lot of options of how to reduce their emissions. You've got lots of technology available. But in the case of carbon dioxide, there is no technology available. All you end up having to do is cut your fuel consumption. That's about the only way you can do it. And so because there aren't really any options um, that, like I say, it, 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 when you get into the technicalities, what it means is there's a lot of price volatility. It becomes a very mm-hmm. unstable system. And so it um, it hasn't worked in practice very well, and I don't think uh, it will work very well for Ontario if it actually goes ahead. How do you think uh, it, it appears to be doubling down by saying that we're just not getting it? We're bad actors here. How do you think that's going to play? <laughs> um, well, I think the fact that we're having this conversation is probably indicates the exasperation that people must feel if if we've incurred all these costs 
up to this point on electricity and on everything else that we buy and having done all what we were supposed to do for the environment and then turn around and we're told we're a bunch of bad guys anyway and uh, I I can imagine people would be pretty exasperated by it and at a certain point I, I would emphasize it has absolutely nothing to do with environmental protection anymore I mean the numbers are are quite clear that Ontario runs a very clean economy we are uh, we have very low emissions per dollar of GDP compared to a lot of jurisdictions around the world, and we've paid for that. I mean, that was expensive to get to that point. So at this point, if, they're, if she's just going to scold people in Ontario, um, then I would say this is no longer a discussion rooted in reality about environmental equality. Uh, obviously, there is an election on the way, and I don't want to get too political, um, but people are already upset about their uh, electricity rates and them continually going up. Uh, then you introduce cap and trade onto all of this, and she's going to have to try to sell that. Uh, will she, do you think, in the end, be trying to defend between cap and trade and a carbon tax? Do you think she could change her mind on that? Well, it's hard to see them changing their mind on cap and trade. Um, I mean, they've they made a really big deal about it. They had that big carbon summit um, back in the spring, and I guess they thought it was going to be really popular. Um, when they took the HST or rebated the HST off the electricity bills, um, that saves a bit of money. But at the same time, they announced they're going ahead with cap and trade, which will add an even larger amount to electricity bills. So. Um, I think they're stuck in the situation where their heart is really in a set of green policies that require them to keep hitting people with higher and higher power prices, but they've also seen that this is now a political problem for them. So how they reconcile those two things, I guess we will see. Dr. Ross McKittrick has been with us, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance at the University of Guelph. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Kathleen Wynne thinks you're a bad actor. Uh, of course, we just talked to uh, Dr. Ross McKintrick, Professor of Economics and Sustainable Commerce Department of Economics with University of Guelph, talking about that side of uh, cap and trade and carbon tax, which one's better, who's taking what and why. Uh, let's look at the poli sci uh, side of this and uh, where this leaves Kathleen Wynne. Joining us now, Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you doing today? Thanks. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Kathleen Wynne said uh, Ontarians very bad actors when it comes to creating greenhouse gases. How's this going to play when you've got a big hydro bill in your hand? Uh, well, I think any time that you say uh, negative things about uh, the people of your province, <laughs> uh, uh, it generally doesn't play well, uh, you know, even if it's true. So, uh, you know, in a situation like that, it is a bit of a, a strange comment. Uh, particularly from someone uh, who's seen as a bit disconnected from uh, the people of Ontario, uh, and so this isn't going to help. I mean, it's one thing for politicians to sometimes say, hey, we're living beyond our means, we have to cut back. That seems to have been a, a successful strategy at times in the 1980s and 1990s, but I don't think if you're seen as a bit distant from the people, as not really uh, listening to uh, their struggles around their hydro bills, that saying that you're a dirty actor is really going to do you very good. Is this similar to Hillary condemning Trump supporters and then eventually had to apologize for that? 
Uh, well, I mean, there at least she had the benefit that she was criticizing uh, just a subset of the population. <laughs> uh, and, you know, people who presumably in many cases she didn't think she was going to attract anyways. So, I mean, it was a, a poor choice, and uh, Trump was able to take some advantage of that. But it's a different thing than saying that uh, the people you re- represent generally, uh, you know, are bad actors. I mean, and, and, you know, it's not just a bad aspect, but... There's a way in which he seems to be saying they don't really understand what's going on, but I do. And again, that doesn't play well if you're already seen as someone who's a bit distant and out of touch with uh, the everyday Ontarian. Uh, how does she combat this? Uh, uh, and as you said, she's making it appear as if she knows more than we do. Uh, but in a tendency with situations like this, a lot of people who are environmentalists, uh, it's never enough. You just keep going and going and going and going. How, how does she spin this? How does she How does she recover from this? Well, I think she needs some better message discipline. I mean, the, the point she's making isn't a ridiculous one, which is to say, you know, Although people say, well, why should we do anything? Because, I mean, Ontarians were only 13 million people. Uh, why should we be, you know, the first movers on this? Because uh, we're a sort of small share of the total, uh, you know, greenhouse gas population. I think she's making a reasonable counter to say, though, in fact, Ontarians burn a lot of energy on a per capita basis. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to uh, think about ways of controlling that. So I think she needs to find another way of crafting that message. I mean, it is a call to say that we'll have to make choices that may be painful in the short term. But uh, again, to to make that kind of claim, it probably doesn't uh, help to start by punching someone in the nose. Uh, Is this bad for the green movement? I mean, you know, I think we've got past the point where we are in denial of climate change. Like, isn't everybody green now to some extent? Uh, It seems that she's tiding green to... Well, in lines like very bad actors, as if we don't understand, as if it's only going to cost us more and more and more. In the end, doesn't this tarnish people's impression of of what a green economy really is? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure I'm not sure if people really have made the uh, the real uh, decision yet. I mean, I think we saw this with the climate change talks last year, where all the states got together and said, yeah, we have to get to this level or we're in real danger. <laughs> we're already in real danger with climate change, but then we get into really crazy danger. Uh, and they all go home and they make plans and none of them actually are going to get to their target. <laughs> so, so are we So are we bad actors? Uh, well, I think uh, we ultimately uh, don't want to pay the price. I mean, collectively, we see a point to doing that, but we're always worried that we're going to be paying more than our fair share. And so that's a, a point at which you do need governments in which you can trust to impose costs and have the political courage to stand up for them. Uh, you know, I don't think that uh, most of our governments are there yet. They, they don't think that there's a sufficient sense of urgency that they can impose these taxes without uh, taking a tax backlash. Uh, I mean, in the case of Kathleen Wynne, it is a bit more surprising because she has Patrick Brown coming out and saying, yeah, we do have to put a tax on carbon. So, I mean, across the political spectrum, We've got political leaders saying, yeah, we do have to take some serious action. You'd think that would open the door for her to be a bit more uh, bold Mm -hmm. in coming forward. And, uh, you know, maybe she may have made a different choice around something like a carbon tax, where at least you could say, yes, people are going to be paying more at the pump, they're going to be paying more for their heating bill, uh, but we can return some of that money uh, in various ways through tax cuts or incentives for, you know, better uh, environmental practices. Uh, But... Uh, and going with cap-and-trade, it's a bit harder for her to free up those sums to uh, to deal with those higher costs. Cap-and-trade more confusing, easy to hide the money, easier? Uh, well, I mean, I think all our governments are pretty good at hiding money, yeah. uh, if they need to. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, because it's fungible, you know, you can say it was for one thing, but then spend it on something else. 
Uh, I mean, I think the carbon tax is a bit easier for people uh, to understand up front, uh, and it's maybe uh, more politically saleable because, uh, I mean, you do have to impose a tax on the front end, but then uh, presumably uh, you can refund that uh, on the back end in terms of reduced taxes or to encourage different kinds of consumption. Uh, cap and trade, it's maybe a bit harder to uh, to make that kind of case, uh, let alone to make a market that's going to work. It's a bit easier to tax something. Uh, than to uh, you know invent a market of emissions. All right, I can't let you go without talking about the latest news. That's Tony Clement dropping out of the con- uh, federal conservative leadership race uh, as quietly as he entered. He exits just as quietly. Surprised here? Uh, yeah, I am a bit surprised, uh, if only because Tony Clement uh, seems to be a stubborn man, and uh, he's wanted to run before, and he's taken his campaigns right to the finish line. Uh, whether it's a gazebo or getting rid of a census, uh, you know, he's stuck to his guns. He's not someone uh, who backtracks. So, I mean, I'm surprised in that sense that he's stepping out. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I mean, it is, wasn't clear to me that he was uh, the man of charisma that the Conservative Party would be looking for to, to lead the party, uh, to, to take it in a direction where it could take on Trudeau. So in that sense, he, you know, he maybe saw the writing on the wall and decided it was better to bow out now than to lose to you know, what looked to be a, kind of a gang of other Ossel-Rans uh, in this race, but certainly someone like Maxime Bernier or Michael Chong, Kelly Leach, all in their own ways had ways of capturing uh, attention, where Tony Clement wasn't really sure how he was going to, to make the case that he would be the leader. So what does this mean for the rest of the race? Uh, well, I mean, it seems to me we have a bunch of, uh, candidates who don't have a whole lot of profile mm. and don't have uh, terribly strong track records. I mean, that, that isn't necessarily a failing. Uh, it may be that, you know, given the chance to stand in the spotlight, they'll find someone who shines, who's able to connect with Canadians, who's able to articulate a vision that both rallies the Conservative base and, and reaches out to voters who have deserted that party in 2015. Uh, but it's also possible they'll end up with someone who's just a bit mediocre. So I mean, it's really going to be interesting in the coming months to see if any of those candidates uh, is able to, to really make the case. I mean, in some cases, they have relatively uh, extreme candidates. You know, they've got an extreme free marketer in Maxime Bernier. They've got some fairly uh, strong religious conservatives around people like uh, Andrew Scheer. Uh, they have someone like Kelly Leach who's really trying to push the hot buttons uh, around immigration and diversity. So... In all those cases, they have people who maybe rally the Conservative base, but it's not clear that they're going to repair the bridges with the broader Canadian electorate. Does Tony Clement know something that we don't behind closed doors? What was the tipping point? Was this all about finance? I suspect it was about finance and also about enthusiastic support. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm sure he... I mean, the fact that we have so many uh, candidates in the running or potential candidates in the running leads me to believe that the power brokers in the Conservative Party are fairly divided. And I think Tony Clement was hoping that given his high profile in the the Harper cabinet, uh, given his linkage back to the Mike Harris government in Ontario, that there might be a strong cadre of uh, party operatives who are really going to throw their weight behind him, uh, both fundraising and organizing. But I think a lot of the uh, younger people who are around uh, the Harper government are looking for a somewhat younger set of hands. And so, uh, you know, we see the Kelly Leaches, the Michael Chongs, the Maxime Berniers uh, picking up the endorsements or picking up people's... uh, agreement to organize for them. And, and in that case, I don't think uh, Tony Clement really saw a path to victory.
Peter Graham has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Remember that guy who, uh, I forget his name, I forget the company at this point, but he, t- he took a very common drug that was used, had been around forever, and then, of course, uh, became public enemy number one when he jacked the price up through the uh, roof. And, and people literally... They wanted to hang this guy, Martin Scarelli. Uh, well, now Valiant Pharmaceutical, a Canadian company, well, in Canada, uh, has hiked the price of a drug used for treatment of life-threatening cases of lead poisoning by more than 2,700%. They acquired uh, the drug Calcium EDTA as part of a deal to buy the company, and as a result, I guess to pay for the investment, have now jacked up the price of drugs that have been around for a long time, really. To talk more about all of this, Michael Veal is with us, professor in the Department of Economics, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Just fine. How are you? Good. So give us the history on Valiant Pharmaceutical. Canadian company or international here? Oh, it's okay. It's a Canadian company. And give us the history of this drug. Well, well basically, this is a, a company that its business model is it goes and it buys drugs from other companies and it increases the price of those drugs, and that's its, its way of making money. Uh, it's trying to find drugs that it feels are uh, potential price increase drugs, and it goes for it. Is Valiant on its way to becoming public enemy number one? Well, I, I think it's, it's done poorly. I, I'm going to come across a little bit as a defender of, of Valiant, but I think the other big story about Valiant you have to know is that in the last year and a half, its stock price has fallen by about 90%. It used to be trading at over $300, and now it's about 35 So it's, it's lost a lot of money, and in fact, it's got $30 billion of debt. Um, and that basically what it did was it borrowed money, of course, to, to buy these drugs. And now the problem is, is that it's got itself into one public relations disaster after another in increasing prices. Uh, it is probably uh, a company that's going to encounter more than its share of uh, regulatory disapproval um, and still it owes money and doesn't really have a great plan for getting back into the block. So how did it lose money? How did its stock price drop 90%? Was that due to speculation on these deals? Well, a couple of things, uh, but basically I think uh, there was resistance when drug prices went up. Apparently their business model did not take into account how uh, skittish this would make potential investors that, you know, maybe the regular regulators are going to come in and say you can't have these increases. Um, and that made it harder for them to, to keep the payments going on their loans. Uh, they have to pay higher interest rates because they've been perceived as more risky. Uh, they're nowhere near investment grade. And at the same time, uh, they're not getting the money from the increases uh, because there's been so much resistance. And in, in some cases, they've had to go with rollbacks. Hmm. Uh, do other companies produce a similar product to this, or do they have a monopoly on this? Uh, no, but uh, as far as I can tell with this drug that we're talking about now, the lead poisoning drug, calcium EDTA, uh, it's been produced, I think, for 60, 70 years. There's, there's no patent on it. Anybody can go in and produce this if they want. At the moment, apparently, uh, they, that is valiant, believes they can get $27,000 a dose, um, and no one's going to come in and take that market away from them. Uh, is it impossible to get a patent for this at this point? Has that expired? Yep. So uh, this is public domain at this point. How long before another company said, well, we can give you this a lot cheaper? 
Well, the thing is, is that not very many doses are actually used, yeah. which is a fortunate thing, right? It's because the reason you use this drug is if you had severe lead poisoning, and fortunately not very many people get severe lead poisoning. Um, what's a little unclear to me is exactly how they handle the inventory, because, of course, if you come into the hospital, you need this drug. That means they've got to have it around. Uh, but at $27,000 a dose, nobody really wants to have that kind of uh, money tied up in their inventory, whether you're a hospital or not. And so how fast the hospital can get the dose from some sort of intermediary and things like that, are, are, it's going to vary depending on uh, geography. Uh, but I don't know that there, there's that big a market. I've heard the market is something like 300 uh, doses per year, and not all of them being used, but just some of them being scattered around so that they're in, in uh, strategic locations. Uh, so, you know, $27,000 is a lot. But 300 doses is not a real big market. Well, you bring up a very valid point. Number one, how prevalent is lead poisoning and how much money are they going to make by, you know, jacking up the price of a few doses? Well, that's true. I, I, I think that they had seemed to be going on a business model where they were trying to avoid being public enemy, number one. You know, there, there was even talk that they would rebrand. And it's possible, of course, what they're going to try to do is increase a few prices and then rebrand so that the, the new brand doesn't carry the... Hmm. The bad image that this one's uh, now associated with. Are people that stupid? Well, um, I don't know that branding makes that much of a difference in this particular market. You know, doctors know the product. Exactly. It's, it's not like you're selling Coca-Cola. So I don't know. But on the other hand, you know, you mentioned Martin Shkreli. He didn't get a great brand name out of out of this uh, process where, where he, he really did, I think, hmm. take serious business losses because he ended up up front on a very unpopular issue. I think Valiant probably doesn't want to be the sort of company that as soon as regulators see its name, they immediately say, well, let's take an extra look at this one because uh, this company has a reputation uh, for increasing prices in a way that many people feel is inappropriate. But, you know, as soon as this story broke, I'm sure immediately everyone thought of Martin Screlly and the whole thing going down. So is that who they want to be associated with as far as, you know, at what point does this become bad PR? I, oh, I think it's well beyond that point now, and I and I must admit I find it uh, puzzling. As you probably know, this drug they'd already increased its price substantially earlier in the year, and then to put another substantial increase on top, uh, it just looks like kind of looking for trouble. Uh, I I don't know. I haven't checked their stock price today, but I'm I'm wondering whether this is going to be a uh, a negative signal for the company that they can't seem to get to a position where. Uh, they can you know, stay out of the headlines. Wasn't this a bad business model from the start? I mean, you know, it, I guess it seems good in theory, but uh, like, couldn't wouldn't a people wouldn't a pile of people sitting around a boardroom table have saw this coming? Apparently not. And uh, of course, it did well for a while, uh, but uh, right now, it it does not look like uh, a very successful strategy. Certainly, I, I just looked it up. The stock's down marginally today. Uh, down to thirty dollars, though, so it's been up as high as thirty-five dollars recently, um, and most of the commentators are suggesting that negative guidance is going to be offered. Uh, but this is, of course, thirty dollars down from a price that just a little more than a year ago was three hundred thirty dollars. And so, mm. you know, that's uh, you don't need to, to know much economics to know that if a company's stock price is three thirty and now it's thirty. Uh, the business model is not working out. So it would be interesting to know what its business model was when it was when its earnings were high and at what point it changed and, and how reflective that is of, of the increase of prices of these drugs that are needed. Yeah, they, I guess, thought that the, uh, 
there were a bunch of companies that had been come very staid in the way they marketed and priced their drugs, and that they could basically buy those drugs and do better. Mm. And uh, the conclusion so far seems to be that's not true. Doesn't that just even sound bad? I mean, doesn't oh, sure. like Michael, if you're sitting in a boardroom and so we're going to take something that somebody needs, we're going to buy it off the company who really isn't promoting it like they should be in 2016, and we're going to become the middleman and jack it up and then give it back to the consumer. I mean, at what point do you say, yeah, that's something that the public needs? Yeah, well, capitalism has an ugly face, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, but doesn't it all come down to public want? Doesn't it all come down to, to, to you know, I, you know I, I'm sure your response will be supply and demand, but at the end of the day, aren't we all trying to fill a need? That's what a successful business is? Well, I certainly uh, am glad that, you know, I didn't invest, not just because I lost, lost lots of money, but I just don't, I agree with you. I don't think this is the, the sort of, of thing that we should aspire to in our society. You know, yeah. I don't think that we should have our, our best business minds thinking around and thinking, Oh, this is a way we can jack up prices and and uh, and do absolutely money. no good. That's right, with absolutely no good. So I I agree with you that this is this is not the the like I said this is the ugly side of capitalism. That, but it is an interesting kind of situation because it's not a monopoly protected by trademark or by a patent. This is a monopoly protected by the fact that to to re-engineer the process of making these these same drugs is relatively expensive, mm. and the market is relatively small. Mm. And so, you know, this is, it would be a perfect case for saying, you know, maybe this should be something in which, which uh, is regulated, because we know that um, this company is not, in fact, innovating in terms of no. making new drugs. This company is just a reseller. Uh, and that dr- this drug has been uh, in the public domain for, what did I say, 60 years, almost 70 years now, and, uh, you know, this is no, there's no good coming from this process at all. So what does this mean for the healthcare system? What does this mean for the average person who's, you know, uh, well, whether they, they find themselves needing the drug or not? What does this do to the system? Well, I think two things. First, of course, is the obvious. It makes it more expensive. Uh, and uh, at some level, even in more private-oriented systems, everybody pays for that. But certainly in our public care system, uh, it makes it more expensive. And we're really concerned about what might happen if hospitals uh, that have financial difficulties uh, don't stock the drug, and then some you know, poor kid ends up with lead poisoning and doesn't get the treatment in time uh, because the drug had to be flown in from some distance. Uh, that's, that's the really negative side. But there's another kind of thing, because there's a lot of people working in this industry who are trying to create new drugs that are going to help people. And that their business model makes some sense. The drugs are going to have to be expensive because you have to pay for this huge amount of innovation and all the testing that has to go in to make the, the drugs work. Mm-hmm. Um, this does not give that industry uh, good public relations. They're una- inevitably going to be kind of tarred by that brush of being, well, you're just a company like Valiant, where you know some of the companies are actually trying to uh, develop new drugs, often in conjunction with medical researchers. Uh, that is the way in our society we've decided to, to introduce new drugs, many of which have done tremendous great good. Uh, but as I say, they can get tarred by the brush of, uh, of this sort of behavior. So can Big Pharma police this themselves? Uh, I don't think so. Um, but I, I don't know exactly uh, what the right procedure is here. I mm-hmm. think, I think uh, they're making about as good a case for being subject to regulation as, as you can make uh, with this sort of behavior. 
I think we in Canada we do have various sorts of regulatory devices uh, to try to keep the lid on this sort of thing. Uh, the United States does not have uh, quite the same sort of structures, but I do think that uh, you know this is kind of tempting fate on their part. How often does this happen? Well, it's actually been relatively recent, right? And and uh, uh, these events with uh, Skrilla and now Valiant, they're kind of new newcomers. The mm-hmm. traditional companies did not do this sort of thing, uh, largely, I think, because they thought, you know, this is a relatively small part of our operation. We're just going to get ourselves into trouble. Um, let's concentrate on the big new drugs we're bringing in and, yeah. and make sure that we don't have a problem bringing those to market because if if we get regulation in, in that uh, part of our operation, we may be in real trouble. Um, so these companies almost deliberately specialized in this, right? In some sense, they don't have that much to lose if it doesn't work out uh, because this is their business, right? Uh, the trouble, of course, is it makes it incredibly uh, risky for investors. So what do you think the future of Valiant is? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this particular stock. Um, I can only read the guidance that that people have written about it, and mm-hmm. uh, I know they've got a new CEO who, up to now, was was thought to be someone who was putting things more more on track. Uh, this seems to be a misstep. Uh, I would I would judge that they've got a much larger probability than average of not existing in a couple of years. Wow. Michael Veal has been with us, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.